Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the diplomatic boycotts of Beijing Winter Olympics 2022. The question that arises is whether the boycotts create a fresh geopolitical division over how to handle a rising China. Since Washington's announcement of a diplomatic boycott a short while ago, a number of governments, including Australia, the UK, Canada, have joined in, citing China's human rights records. However, many other governments are leaning in favour of critical engagement with China over diplomatic boycotts, and even New Zealand has quoted the pandemic and China's strict border control and quarantine rules for deciding not to send an official delegation to the Games. Meanwhile, Russian President Putin and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres will be among a handful of leaders that have confirmed their attendance at the Games. So joining me today to discuss these questions are Asia-Pacific analysts Hans Foran and Aidan Mordecai. Welcome, gentlemen. If I could start with you, Aidan, what does the US government seek to achieve from its diplomatic boycott? Is it just a question of raising publicity about human rights in Xinjiang or potentially Hong Kong? What do you think is their objective here? There's an element to the human rights allegations in in Xinjiang and, as you said, in, in Hong Kong. I wouldn't say that's the main driver of the diplomatic boycott. Of course, a range of countries have a lot of human rights issue, and we don't always see similar actions taken by Washington and its allies. Qatar is going to host the World Cup uh, later in the year, and, and again, I'll be doubtful if similar actions get taken. And while obviously the rights activist groups related to those issues are keen to use that publicity that they can get from it, the main reason I think that Washington is making this decision is it is part of the wider and the longer running tensions between Beijing and Washington and as an extension of Washington's allies. So that's why we've seen, of course, the UK, Australia and Canada follow suit in a similar way. What they think can come from this diplomatic boycott, I don't think they're expecting too much. Personally, it wasn't the strongest action they could take in terms of the Beijing Olympics. Of course, it was a diplomatic boycott. In during a pandemic, when you could argue maybe politicians, it's not essential for them to travel in any case. They didn't really push. There wasn't a strong push to boycott the games completely, including athletes or sponsors, for example. So I think it was probably considered a measure take from our Washington's allies to put a bit more pressure on China and not in a surprising enough way to inflame or escalate tensions, which were already quite high, even further. Thanks, Aidan. I wondered whether, given the parlour state of Biden's domestic approval ratings, albeit not a particularly effective step, given the low level of interest in foreign policy in the US, whether this was actually a move by Biden to do something about his approval ratings. Is there a clear sense of how US population views this action? I think Playing to the domestic side is definitely part of it. I think it's become an increasingly bipartisan position in Washington since Trump took over to put a strong stance against China and Beijing. And as a result, there was pressure not just 
from, from both political sides within the US um, to do something in, in this case. But like you said, how much it would really help his standing with the wider public, particularly when you've got so many pressing issues domestically, mostly related to the, the pandemic and the economy. I'll be surprised if it has that much of an effect. Thanks. You've made a very good point there, Aidan. But perhaps now turning to China, how have they responded to the diplomatic boycott so far? Again, I don't think it was a surprise from them. It had been rumoured and it had been discussed for a number of months before. And that helped them prepare. And they've been quite dismissive of it, of course. Again, it's part of the ongoing trend and the ongoing rivalry between the two powers. They've, of course, not been happy about it. And they've criticised the US and, and its allies for politicizing an international sporting event such as Olympics and also uh, took the sort of angle to say you know there wasn't going to be an invite for them anyway. I think it's been quite digestible from Beijing in terms of it they can use it for their own position while they're also trying to keep their pandemic out so less I guess delegations coming over that can makes their lives easier in some ways. At the same time they've sent some warnings to Washington and the allies to say there'll be certain repercussions for the decision. I think there's a desire not to make any move now because they've still got to organise Beijing Olympics. It's still going to be obviously showcased around the world and they want it to be a success. And I don't think they'll want this diplomatic boycott to get too big, particularly now, and take some of the shine off what they hope will still be an exceptional event that showcases abilities to, to host such grand occasion. You raise an interesting issue there, Aidan. And I wonder whether, Hans, you might be able to address it for me. You know, you can see how China finds it relatively easy to dismiss Western anti-Chinese meddling. The relationship with its near abroad, you know, Japan, South Korea and others is more nuanced, as we know, and not quite so clear cut in terms of the bilateral relations What do you think would happen if any of these countries decided to join the diplomatic boycott? And what do you think the chances of them doing so actually is? It's a very interesting question. And to be honest with you, it's, as you said, a pretty complicated one. Beijing has been applying a lot of pressure onto its neighboring countries to not boycott the the Beijing Olympics with China. So going so far as to call out the the Tokyo government by saying, "We we support the Tokyo Games. We need you to support the Beijing Games in a reciprocal fashion. So it's been an interesting response, especially from the Japanese government. So as we all know, the Japanese government recently elected a new prime minister, Fumio Kishida, who has a bit of a mixed approach towards China throughout his diplomatic career. So when he was foreign minister, he had a quite dovish approach, trying very hard not to say anything that's too provocative of China. Whereas when he was defense minister, he very much tried to hold a more hawkish approach towards China in terms of security matters. And this kind of dove hawk approach has very much been a hallmark of his very short administration at the moment. And you can very much see it in the way he's appointed his administration. So at the moment, his foreign minister is Yoshimasa Hayashi, who is historically known to have quite deep connections with Chinese businesses and Chinese politicians. And he's very much been criticized for that during his short tenure as foreign minister, where there have been rumors that he may or may not attend the Beijing Olympics himself, and that he may or may not have a diplomatic meeting with his Chinese counterpart sometime before the Games, which has sparked not only criticism domestically, but also with, within the ruling party itself. Then he's saying that it's not a very good look for the party to try and meet with China amidst the COVID outbreak and amidst kind of the, the heightened tensions relating to China and alleged human rights violations. 
I think the more interesting one, though, is kind of his appointment of people such as Gen Nakatani, who is the special advisor on human rights issues, which has particular focus on China and the issues in Xinjiang. So Gen Nakatani has a very long history of trying to push for a Japanese version of the U.S. Majesty Act, which essentially would allow the Japanese government to issue sanctions against countries that violate their human rights standards. He's been vocal in saying he wants to basically create this act, this Japanese version, to enact sanctions, some type of form of sanctions or retaliatory actions against China for its human rights violations, be it against Tibet or Xinjiang. So having these people in his administration, these kind of counterbalancing individuals has been a bit of a balancing act for him. And he's been trying very hard not to make too many hard statements against the Beijing Olympics. He did recently say he's personally not going to the Beijing Olympics, but he also said he wouldn't stop high-ranking officials from going themselves. And that would be a much more of a personal decision. Whether or not we see anyone go is a big question. There's a big internal squabble within the ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party, about what's appropriate. So high-ranking officials such as Sanae Takaichi, who is the Policy Research Council chair, she's basically said that she wants a full-on boycott or a full-on diplomatic boycott of the other Beijing Olympics. Will the same apply in South Korea, do you think? Discussion and debate be as complicated or are they clearer about what their plans are? So for the South Koreans, that's a little bit more that's a little bit more straightforward in the sense that Moon Jae-in has said that they have no plans of boycotting the, the Beijing Olympics and that they will send a delegation. However, the, the motivation behind that's slightly different. So from what it appears, Moon wants to visit the games for a mix of reasons, not wanting to upset China, being a very important trading partner. But at the same time, I think there's a secret desire for Moon that he wants to have a meeting with his North Korean counterpart, Kim Jong-un, or another high-ranking official while there. The relations between the two countries have been quite low, and there have been talks about there being a potential of China potentially brokering a meeting between the two sides while at the Beijing Games, which was their plan during the Tokyo Games, which unfortunately didn't go through because of COVID restrictions. So there is still this kind of hope of improved relationship between the two countries before he steps down from his post as president of South Korea in February. And also at the same time, it would leave his administration and his ruling party's candidate, uh, Lee Jae-myung, on a high note before the presidential election in February. Uh, at the moment, the, Lee Jae-myung and his counterpart uh, at the opposition party are neck and neck in the, in the race, and that there's very much a hope that some type of progress with North Korea would help their, their standing in the, the voting process, which as of right now, doesn't look very good. Kim Jong-un has been very vocal and not wanting to go abroad during the pandemic. So the likelihood of there being such a meeting, uh, either with himself or other high-ranking officials, is quite low at the moment. Yeah, I suspect we could devote an entire podcast to the will-they-won't-they they of meetings and what those meetings might produce between North Korea and, and anyone else. Let's move on and consider you know, the way in which Olympic boycotts are viewed more widely. Obviously, a very controversial issue. People have very divergent views on their effectiveness. As Aidan pointed out at the start, it, we're quite selective about the things we decide to protest about on human rights questions, it seems. And so the cynical might argue that they are just a politicization of sport. But, you know, in this case, the, we have political diplomatic boycotts of the Beijing. Winter Olympics, what do you think the impact on the Games and the Games stakeholders likely to be? By which I mean, you know, we've discussed China, but others, whether it's uh, sponsors, the International Olympic Committee, give us your thoughts. I guess that's probably the, be the more interesting elements of this, what will be, I guess, the secondary effects and, and the knock-on impact to those involved indirectly or not making this decision to boycott, but will feel the consequences. And sponsors is 
a key one. They, of course, generally trying to stay away from the discussion. You know, they've already signed up to sponsor, you know, what they thought was going to be, uh, I imagine, an international event where they were going to be shown on TV while people raised medals and cheered on their athletes, etc. And, of course, relations between the two countries have worsened in recent years. And now they're kind of sort of stuck in, in the middle of, of a situation they didn't quite expect. So of course, the US government hasn't, or those who have called a boycott, haven't put pressure on them to stop sponsoring the games. But at the same time, you know, they've cited human rights issues and, and they've claimed that China is uh, committing genocide. And now sponsors are connected to the games and a host who has been accused by their government of these allegations. So sponsors are in a really very difficult position and will be wondering how much the consumer and the boycott will extend from governments to potentially uh, the public. There's been calls, of course, from, from human rights groups and themselves to, to boycott the games in a, in a wider sense, boycott the broadcasters who are showing it, boycott the products who are sponsoring the games. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that they've been that effective yet, but of course time will tell in that sense. On the other hand, in the future, maybe companies will decide, um, you know, international sporting events, not just Olympics, but international sporting events involving uh, China or the US, maybe it's not worth getting involved in being a public face of it, because it's going to be put in a position where almost there's a side to choose, which I imagine most companies ideally would like to stay away from, you know, with the Chinese market being as big as it is, pulling out of sponsoring such an event isn't an easy option. Chinese consumers have been shown to mobilize quite quickly when it comes to uh, such issues. So I think there's some uh, interesting potential consequences that other companies will be watching for and, and seeing how the public and how consumers and, and the Chinese state react to such actions. Thanks very much, Aidan. And thank you, Hans, as well. It's an interesting time in China, obviously, and these boycott, well, probably not going to make a huge amount of difference. Athletes will still compete, as you say. The Chinese government will present it the way it wishes, aided perhaps by the continuing pandemic crisis uh, as it returns in Europe and the US at least. So we'll keep an eye on it and no doubt have more to say in the months to come. And Hans and Aidan, I look forward to speaking to you about it then. Thank you very much. And joining us now for a look ahead at the events of the weeks ahead, is Anastasia Chisholm, our Associate Analyst for the Middle East. Well, it certainly seems as if we've got a busy holiday period ahead. Russia has this week demanded urgent talks with the US and NATO on security guarantees in Eastern Europe. The demand follows the publication of Moscow's own security proposals last week, many of which NATO and the EU have ruled out. As such, high-level strategic talks will remain a major flashpoint for current regional tensions in the coming weeks, as the threat of another Russian invasion of Ukraine remains elevated. Elsewhere in Europe this week, Poland's president is likely to decide on whether to veto a controversial media law or pass it to a constitutional tribunal. If taken to a tribunal, it will mark another concerning development for media freedom in the country, given increasingly poor judicial independence. This will drive policy risks for non-EU media operations in 2022, including US firms. In Sudan, the Freedom for Forces of Change Civilian Coalition have called for an escalation of nationwide anti-military protests on the 24th and the 25th of December, which are likely to be met by an excessive use of force by security forces, including the firing of live bullets and tear gas. Some flashpoints for protest activity include Khartoum, Port Sudan, Madani and Kassala. 
On the 26th of December, authorities in Bangladesh will hold the fourth phase of rural council elections, likely generating a renewed bout of election-related violence and unrest and generating regional travel disruptions. Finally, the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency warned in August that public and private sector organizations experience heightened cyber threats during the holidays due to limited IT services provided during this period. There's an elevated risk of similar attacks taking place during or around the upcoming Christmas and New Year's period, most likely targeting retailers, e-commerce and logistics firms. Thank you very much, Anastasia. As ever, if you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, please do get in touch via email at info at 